0: Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. I think Noah was getting a little choked up there during Hark. Where is he? There he is. It's okay, man. You're with family. No, how could you not get choked up? Love it. Alright, let's continue our worship now as we turn to the Gospel of John in the 17th chapter. John 17. We're going to be looking at verses 6 Through 19. We'll read 6 through 19 anyhow. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the Son of God praying to the Father. Verse 6 I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we begin our dive into the second of four messages considering this prayer of our Lord in John chapter 17, I want to remind you of the charge given during our time last week, and that is to consider your eternity. To consider the very next moment following the second you take your final breath of air on this earth, to consider your own mortality and the reality that even if you live another 80 years in this world, how both the scriptures and the one who inspired them consider even that amount of time to be nothing more than a vapor, a mist that is here one moment and gone the next when compared to eternity. I ask you right from the start to set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, to shift your gaze from the things of this fleeting world and put them on the everlasting glory of Christ. And I hope that this text, this precious text in which the Creator Himself prays for those whom He has called out of the world, I hope this will help you do just that. I want you all, I want us all, if even for the next 45 minutes, but beyond that, as you leave here today to. Turn your eyes upon Jesus to ask yourself, not other fallen men and women, but yourself, in your own heart, truly, sincerely, if you're among those whom he says in verse 24 will be with him where he is, where you will behold his glory. Ask yourself if that's true of you. If the one who knows your heart "...has, by the power of His Holy Spirit, miraculously transformed your heart then to truly know Him. Pray to the God of all creation and ask Him if you truly know Him. And the one whom He sent into the world, the one who prayed to the Father on the night He was betrayed, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours." You gave them to me. Now, I'll just warn you right from the get-go, just a warning. We're going to again consider a biblical teaching which many professing believers today find to be totally and completely offensive, if not reprehensible. And that is what we alluded to last week, uh, using John 6 as our basis, the biblical doctrine of divine election or predestination. Otherwise known as the eternal decree of the Lord God Almighty by which of his own free will and sovereign determination according to the riches of his grace, the counsel of his will, and by his mere good pleasure, he chose to set his salvific love upon certain individuals. And in this case, our text for this morning, 11 individuals, not according to what they had done, nor any supposed redeemable qualities, which they would probably say were non-existent, but ultimately and only for reasons that God and God alone knows, and ultimately by his grace alone and for his glory alone. And however offensive that may be to some... Anybody who actually reads the scriptures and submits to them as their ultimate authority, which we'll talk about later, anyone who actually submits their lives to the authority of the word of God, this is their ultimate authority, meaning not their feelings, not their pride, not the opinions of those around them, whether fellow believers or unbelievers, but anyone who submits to the scriptures as their ultimate authority and reads them in their plain literal sense has to admit that the doctrine of predestination and therefore unconditional election are clearly taught. If, If they're being honest, if they're being honest. Difficult to comprehend? Definitely. Hard to swallow at times? Sure. Offensive? Perhaps, at first. But the truth? Oh yeah, absolute truth truth, which is primarily, primarily given by Jesus Christ himself, the same Jesus these people claim to believe in and follow, and yet they constantly twist and manipulate his clear teachings to make themselves feel better about some admittedly hard-to-swallow teachings. But they are, oh, oh, so important teachings in terms of a believer's assurance Concerning the, everla- the eternal destination of their everlasting soul. <laughs> Therefore, God's sovereignty and salvation is what we love to preach. And that's what we'll do this morning. Let's do it now as we look again at verse 6. God praying to God. God the Son praying to God the Father. Says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours... You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Last week, we talked about the glory of God as both the sum total of all of his attributes and also the radiant, glowing, physical manifestation of God displayed in what is known as his Shekinah glory. When Jesus spoke of glorifying God on earth, he was speaking about that first type of glory. As he went about for three years, casting out demons, performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, causing limbs and muscles and tendons to grow that had not been there before, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, he said. As he preached with authority, even causing the officers who came to arrest him to admit, never has a man spoken like this, he spoke perfectly, all the time, always concerning the kingdom of God and what it meant for sinners to be reconciled, truly reconciled to a holy God, not by any works, but only by faith alone. He went out publicly manifesting the glory of God to whoever happened to be around at the time. But here he says, Father, I manifested your name, which is actually the same thing, your name person your attributes your nature but intimately particularly directly clearly and in depth to these men you know at times he spoke in parables other times he spoke in figures of speech but not with these 11 not on this night these 11 men know more about you, Father. They know more about me. They know more about the kingdom of God and the new covenant than anyone else in world history. These 11 guys, these 11 men who, who sat before him as he prayed these intercessory words as, as their great high priests, these men, not many who are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty not many of noble birth, Paul says. Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. I mean, this is a ragtag bunch of dudes here. No chief priests, no Sadducees, no Pharisees, no temple guards even, no leaders of synagogues in this group here. we got some fishermen, a tax collector, and a revolutionary. Who knows the bloodshed and deception that Simon the Zealot had participated in. Uh, but at least he was a nationalist. He hated Rome, right? Matthew sitting in the middle of all of them. Even the disciples themselves are like, okay, stinky fishermen are one thing, but did you really have to bring the cheat along on this venture? Everyone hated Jewish tax collectors, even the Jews, especially the Jews. But you see, that was their worldly status. That's how the temporal world saw them, that's how everyone else viewed them. That was just their occupation. Their interests, their hobbies even. But now, and for the, first, uh, for the past three years, they have been face to face and side by side with the one who not only saw what was going on out here, like the rest of us, but they were with the one who saw what was going on in here all the time. In other words, he saw them for who they truly were, sinners, <laughs> miserably wretched Totally depraved, woefully corrupt sinners. Not always as wicked as they could have been all the time, not even as wicked as some others during that place and time. But when compared with perfection, which is what a holy God truly requires to come into his presence, when compared with his perfect son who walked among them and is now praying for them, they were all, they were like all other corrupt men and women. They were totally and completely spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually dead. They were dead. It was bad enough that they were looked down upon by the religious authority who could only see the outside of man and judge them for it. But here they were sitting around the one man who could see into their hearts. Jesus knew every little intimate detail of their lives. What they had done in the past, What they were doing right now, what they would go on to do in the future, what they had said, what they had thought even, could you imagine? He could could see into their hearts, which revealed their thoughts. In fact, he knows every little detail of every heart of everyone who has ever lived, including these 11 men. And yet, he not only willingly saves them from their sin, but he prays for them. Why? Why? Because they belong to the Father. Because at some point, before the foundation of the world, God the Father, for whatever reason, chose to save them from the penalty of their sin and to redeem them out of the world by sending his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for them, to take their place, in fact, to bear the wrath that. They deserve, as God the Son was separated from his Father for the first time in all of eternity so that they would never have to be again. They were yours, Jesus said. They were the Father's possession. He foreknew them, okay? Not that he looked down some fictitious corridor of time, which was invented by Confused men who couldn't come to grips with divine truth. Not that he looked down some tunnel of time to see who would choose him before then electing them for salvation. Oh no, that would be impossible for two reasons. First of all, it would have required the omniscient God having to learn something that he didn't previously know. As supposedly he looked down this corridor, which in its end only leads to someone getting credit for their own salvation. But let me ask you this question. What was he looking at before he turned to look down the corridor? When he allegedly didn't know who would choose him. Didn't know? Brothers and sisters, the omniscient God of the heavens and the earth never learns anything. He, he knows all things at all times, always. He never grows He never learns, he never improves, he never matures, he never gets stronger, he never gets weaker for that matter. He is always and has always been and will always be perfect in all of his ways, including being perfectly wise and perfectly knowledgeable concerning all things. And the second reason why this corridor theory cannot be true, and that is, These guys, in their natural state, would have never sought out the one true God on their own. Fake gods? Sure. Gods of their own making? Naturally. Gods who look down corridors of times and learn things they didn't know before? Yes, indeedy. But they never would have sought after the one true God in their own strength. No, they were predestined to seek him out. They were predestined to believe. They were predestined for salvation. Before they had done anything right or wrong, before their conception even, before the foundation of the world, before creation itself, their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Eternal life. Because they were the Father's, and the Father chose them as His own. His grace was efficacious. His decree was realized. The intended effect was accomplished, as it is, with all who were appointed to eternal life. Right? That's Acts 13. He didn't foresee them, that they would choose him. He foreknew them intimately, personally, like Adam knew his wife Eve. It's the same That by his own sovereign good pleasure, he would call his sheep by his name. They would hear his voice. He would save them from their sin. He would glorify them in his presence. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, how can you argue this? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you know what? Paul, another sinner saved by efficacious grace alone, anticipated how folks would cross their arms and tap their feet at the teaching of God's sovereign election. When he said, so then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs. But on God. Never forget those three words. But on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, Paul says, he knew this was coming. On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or Or does not the potter have the authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? My friends, don't be offended at these words for another moment. Resist the devil. Flee from him. Don't be offended at this revelation from God that he is truly all-sovereign, even over salvation, your salvation. He's telling you, this is who I am. This is who I am. Even now, through this prayer of his son, recorded in his divine word, once you... Let me just tell you, once you realize this truth, that it's not up to you ultimately, that even though you have faith, the faith was given to you as a gift from God, that even though you do come, it's only because the Father drew you in. Once your flesh stops being offended at the thought of a totally sovereign God, I'm here to tell you a huge burden will be lifted from your shoulders. I've seen it happen with many sitting in this room right now. I've seen that weight lifted. <clears throat> when you realize it's, it's not up to you to will or to run or to obtain or maintain your internal salvation, but only up to God who has mercy, it's like a huge weight is lifted. Because again, if it were up to me, I would blow it every time. I'll just tell you personally, I would be a total wreck if this wasn't true. I need this to be true. Otherwise, I'd rather die where I'm standing. Because I'd just be storing up wrath for myself on the day of judgment. We're not sure if I am. I desperately need this to be true. For for God and God alone to save my soul, I will blow it every time if it's up to me. I give my testimony quite often. And every time when I think of my life before Christ, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. I'm embarrassed to say who I was. And I probably wouldn't say who I was if it not for the sheer amazing grace displayed as the testimony went on. I deserve nothing but hell. I'm embarrassed at what I've done and who I was. And to be honest, I ain't all that great now. Thank you for the amen. Can I always appreciate those? Perfectly timed amens. I agree, amen. All that to say, I would have never sought out the one true God or come to the one true God in my own strength. Never. I was an absolute wretch of a man. And any true believer in here will say the same thing. Even if your history isn't as tainted as mine, when placed up against the perfect son of God and what it took to save your soul, believe me, your testimony is just as dramatic. And it's just as miraculous. It's like Spurgeon said, one of my favorite quotes. I don't know how many times I've said this from this pulpit. I believe the doctrine of election... Because I'm quite certain that if God hadn't chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would never would have chosen me afterwards. afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. It's that special saving love of God that causes us to say, why? Why? Why us? What, Why these guys? Why the tax collector of all people? Surely there were much more honest and much more upright citizens walking around Jerusalem at that time. Why James and John who squabbled over sitting at the right hand of Christ mere moments after he said, you know, I'm going to be killed soon. Yeah, Mark 10. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. Very next words. Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Are you kidding me? But you know what? That's us. That's who we are. That's what we do. Why prideful Peter who has his mind set on the things of the, the world to the point where Jesus Christ told him, get behind me, Satan. The man who had gone to deny him three times. Jesus even called it. He knew. This night as Peter sat there that Peter would deny him and yet he still prayed for this man. Why? Why? Because he belonged to the Father. James and John belonged to his Father. The deceitful tax collector belonged to the Father. You belong to the Father. If you truly believe. And so he saved you. Just like he saved me. And... This doesn't make us better than anyone, nor should it cause us to boast before men. Our only boast is Christ, His death and resurrection. If anything, it should make us the most humble as we fall on our faces in utter shock and worship that He would have, in His amazing grace, shower His abundant mercy on miserable wretches like us. That's why we sing. That's why He gets all the glory. All the glory, amen? That's right. Jesus cherished these 11 men as he knew his father cherished them. They were a prized possession to his father whom he always glorified and whose name he always manifested perfectly. Note, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. He says, Father, they were yours. You gave them to me. Again, John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will know I will never cast out. All that he has given me, I lose nothing. Here he says again, they were yours. You gave them to me. I revealed you to them, and they have kept your word. Of course they kept his word. They were sovereignly chosen to keep his word. They were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that these 11 men and all believers since would walk in them, including the work of continuing to manifest his name to the world after Christ left. In other words... Don't let people talk you out of what is clearly taught in the divinely inspired scriptures just because they happen to be offended at it for whatever reason. Don't let them take you as a little vulnerable lamb away from this flock where you hear the word and you have people who love the word and have a high regard for Christ and his word and take you off to what they deem to be the, the greener side of the grass and devour you. Like the wolves they are. We must protect our vulnerable little sheep from the wolves. We must stand our ground on our biblical convictions no matter what. Again, think of your own eternity. I don't mean this in an insulting way, but guess what? I don't have to stand before any of you to give an account on judgment day. And you know what? None of you have to stand before me on judgment day either, or anyone else. Man's opinion of you will mean nothing at that moment. But God's opinion of you will mean everything at that moment. Everything. So stop kowtowing to men just because they're offended at stuff like this. Amen. Well, Spurgeon said the same thing, so this is safe. You're in good company. Speaking to a room full of preachers, he said this, You know, some of you have never preached on election since you were ordained. These things, you say, are offensive. And so, you would rather offend God than offend man? But you reply, these things will not be practical. I do think that the climax of all man's blasphemy is centered in that utterance. Tell me that God put a thing in the Bible that I am not to preach. You are finding fault with my God. But you will say, it is dangerous. What? God's truth dangerous? I should not like to stand in your shoes when you have to face your Maker on the day of judgment after such an utterance as that. Mm. Dangerous, huh? Because it shrinks the church. Because you lose friends, stop influencing people. <laughs> it's a shame. These guys, these 11 apostles, we'll see it in some of their epistles, had a reverence for the Word, an adoration for the Word, a steadfast determination to keep the Word. Up to this point, Jesus said, they have kept your Word. Now, they didn't know everything, okay? They were, they were limited at this point as to what they knew, Even after his resurrection, they said, Okay, is it at this time you're going to usher in the kingdom? Jesus essentially says, That's none of your business. (laughs) I don't think they could have given you a lecture on the Ordo Salutis at this point, or what the throne room of God looked like is going to look like during the tribulation period. John wouldn't write that for another like fifty years. But the word they had, they kept. We know you are the Holy One come from God. We know you are the promised Messiah come from above. We know that the God of our Father sent you into the world to save us from our sin and reconcile us to himself. We believe your word. We believe your gospel. You are the Christ. Jesus said as much in verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. They received them truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Now notice what Christ says next in verse 9. Another shocking statement, which is again too much for some to bear. I ask on their behalf, he says. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I'm asking on their behalf. Not the whole world. I'm praying for them, not everyone else. He prays for the world uh, to some degree down in verse 22, that that all believers would be unified so that the world may believe that you sent me. But here he says, no, no, no. I'm only praying for the elect, the chosen, the predestined, the set-apart ones, the saints, which is all believers, but in this case, these 11 men whom you gave me out of the world, a world which since the fall of Adam has been diametrically opposed to the things of God. Because you have separated them, these 11 from the world, that's who I'm going to pray for now. Matthew Henry said this, take the world for a heap of unwindowed corn in the floor. God loves it. Christ prays for it and dies for it, for a blessing is in it. But... The Lord, perfectly knowing those that are his, he eyes particularly those who were given him out of the world and extracts them. Now take the world for the remaining heap of rejected, worthless chaff that Christ neither prays for nor dies for it, but abandons it, and the wind drives it away. End quote. Isn't that something? Very good. At least I got one amen from the lady in the back. Our Lord then follows up with another monumentally significant statement here. One that is so often overlooked amongst the great I am's in John. Look at this huge claim by Christ in verse 10. All things that are mine are yours. Yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. Now anyone in this room right now can say that all things that are ours belongs to God. Ultimately, he owns everything. Everything is his. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He owns all people, whether believers or unbelievers. He owns the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, even all the mountains and all the seas and everything in between. He owns all cells. He owns all molecules. Everything in this world belongs to him. Therefore, everything that we may think is ours is actually his. Jesus says, yep, that's right, me too. All things that are mine, Father, are yours. But listen closely. He then says something that none of us could ever say. Yours are mine. We can't say that. I don't own you. You don't own me. I don't own my wife. I don't own my kids' souls. I don't own the chickens in my backyard or the, my house or my trees or my truck. I don't own anything. Actually, the bank owns my house. <laughs> but even if I paid the bank or the former owners of my things every last penny and got the title to them all, at the end of the day, I'm still borrowing all these things from the ultimate source of all things, so I don't actually own anything. And I certainly can't say that all that is God's belongs to me. Talk about somebody having a complex complex. Yet here, Jesus says it clear as day. All things that are mine are yours. All things that are yours are mine. How? How can he make such a claim? Answer, because the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is God. He and the Father are one. One in essence, one in authority, one in eternality. They are one in everything, along with God the Holy Spirit, The three persons of the Trinity have no separate agendas. They have no divided interests. They have no side hustles. And certainly, (laughs) certainly no personal possessions. Oh, this is mine. This one's mine. No, what's God's is God's. Namely, all things, and specifically, particularly today, these 11 men. You probably thought that song choice was an interesting one in the September morning, but I can assure you it was intentional. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Why are angels singing? Why is glory being given to a newborn well? Because the one spoken of by the prophets had come into the world, the very world he spoke into existence. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this because the newborn king, the one who will inherit the throne of David and reign over his kingdom, the one who will be given to us by Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, was indeed sent into the world to reconcile his people to himself. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And this newborn babe is none other than the wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. He's the eternal father in human flesh. Veiled in flesh. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us. In flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. All that belong to the Father belong to the Son. Why? Because the Son and the Father are one. That baby was God in human flesh. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. I bring you good news of great joy. Christ the Savior has been born today. And here he is, over three decades later, a grown man. The direct fulfillment of all those prophecies and promises from the Father, the perfect Son of Righteousness, about to accomplish his divinely agreed upon task. The very purpose of Christ being sent into this world is to redeem a people to himself, to his Father. To to reconcile a people to God. God. Of people in every generation who belong to him but have gone astray. This was accomplished by the Son, who is then gifted a people by his Father, a people who he would purchase out of the slave market of sin and death with his own shed blood. Revelation 5 says, And they sang a new song. This is in heaven saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He did it. Less than 24 hours from this prayer, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied as he paid the sin debt of these 11 men in full. And not only theirs, but for all those who are chosen from before the foundation of the world. Are you one of those this morning? You can be absolutely certain that you are if you would but trust in his word and in his gospel. So Jesus says verse 11 speaking as if it were already finished which as we learned last week in the eyes of the eternal omniscient God it was as good as done he says I am no longer in the world yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you holy father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that we may be one that they may be one even as we are that's a remarkable statement We've seen the predestination of the 11, the separation of the 11, now the preservation of the 11. Of course, if we are chosen by the grace of God, my brothers and sisters, don't ever get it twisted, we are kept by the grace of God. Keep them, Father, in your name. Again, the name of God is like the glory of God, the perfect nature of God, the perfect attributes of God. Keep them in your attributes, Your faithfulness, your unchangeableness, if you say you're going to give them eternal life, they can trust that you're not going to change your mind someday because you never change. If you say you will save them and keep them, you will save them and keep them. It's a part of your nature. You can never lie. Keep them in your truth, your mercy, your grace, your love, your steadfast love, your abiding word. Keep them in your justice and your wrath even knowing full well that the Son already paid for their sin. And therefore, they are kept not according to their ability, not according to their continuing on in the faith, not even being some really great Christian men and women, but they are kept in your promise that his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for their sin. And they are kept by the same power that saved them in the first place, in your name. In who you are, Father. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Let me be as clear as I can. If you are a true believer in Christ, you will never, ever lose your salvation. Ever. He will keep you until that dying breath and for all of eternity thereafter. Walk out of here with all the confidence in the heavens and the earth. He has sealed you and secured you with his very own Holy Spirit. He kept the 11 in his name, and he will keep you in his name. Trust me, you can take it to the bank. I know the owner, personally. (laughs) Jesus says in verse 10, verse 12, while I was with them, and mind you, he's still there. They're, They're hearing all of this. But he's a dead man walking right now. Judas is rallying the troops as he speaks. He's putting on chapstick, getting ready to betray the Son of God right now with a kiss. So Jesus says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. In other words, I was guarding them with your word. They have kept your word. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the Son of Perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. There he is, Judas Iscariot, who never belonged to the Father, whom the devil had entered into, who was never actually of them to begin with. He was just playing Christian, like so many in our churches today. But Judas never actually belonged to the Father in a salvific sense. Rather, Judas, along with every unbeliever and nominal Christian since, was passed over, from before the foundation of the world. It's called the doctrine of reprobation. He was passed over from before the foundation of the world. He was left in his original spiritually dead condition instead of being born again to eternal life. As Jesus himself said, of all who would die in their sins, John 3.18, Judas was judged already Do you have that? Did I put that? Maybe I didn't put that. I'm sorry. Brother. Judas was judged already. Condemned already. I better read it. I didn't put it up there, huh? Okay. Let me read it. So you guys don't think I'm just making it up. John 3. You can turn there. I think I said trust me earlier. Don't trust me. Look in your own Bibles. Look at John 3.16. A classic. But we have to keep reading. Because I'm going to read John 3.18. This is what Jesus says of of people, uh, unbelievers. Notice, he says, For God so loved the world, that's believers, "uh, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Praise the Lord. He who believes in him is not judged. Now listen to this. Here's where Judas is. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Judas was judged already. He was judged from his conception, judged from his birth. He was born and conceived in sin. He was judged already. When God passes over unbelievers, he just leaves them in that already condemned state. In this case, Judas was not only passed over, not only left in that state, but he was used by Satan and ultimately God to be the trigger man to start that which was necessary to accomplish so great a salvation. The sacrifice of Christ, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Psalm 69 says it. Psalm 109 says it. Psalm 41 prophesies it to a T. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's Judas. Jesus said the uh, the same thing that very night. I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. John 13, 18. He said that uh, earlier while Judas was sitting right there in the room about to dip his bread in the bowl. So eventually Jesus looks over and says, you do what you got to go. You do what you got to do. Goes out, gets his money, betrays the son of man with a kiss. And Jesus knew it all. He Everything was going according to divine plan. The son of man is going just as as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's what that means. He's the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Now, some people actually think that Judas Iscariot will be the, the, excuse me, the Antichrist will be the resurrected Judas Iscariot. You ever heard that? Do You believe that? good because it's nonsense. Judas is currently in hell awaiting the resurrection to the great white throne judgment along with all other reprobates. And that won't happen until the entire world is burned up and destroyed. I kept them in your name, Father. I lost none of them. But now, verse 13, I come to you these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy full in themselves. This is Jesus saying, I'm praying this prayer even now so they can hear it, understand it, record it, and come back to it once I'm gone. And not only that, but that of all who are ours, all believers from this point forward can also hear these words and be comforted by them. And not only comforted, but in fact, even have joy, even in the midst of life in this evil and corrupted world system, and not just any joy, but my joy. Do you see that in verse 13? That word for joy there means exceeding gladness. I'm speaking these words. How important are these words? His scripture. That they may have my joy made full in themselves. You know what this is? This is the real prosperity gospel. Not the demonic, man-centered, man-pleasing, man-exalting, flesh-gratifying circuit we know circus we know is the prosperity gospel today. No, no, this doesn't speak of temporal, worldly prosperity or fleshly prosperity. This speaks of soul prosperity, lasting prosperity, eternal prosperity, eternal joy. Christ says, my joy, true joy, divine joy though the cross is before me, joy. The, whatever happens in this world, they know where they will spend eternity and who they will spend eternity with, joy. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, joy. Would be made full in themselves. Don't you want that kind of joy? That's right, me too. The one who For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want joy in the midst of your troubles and persecution? It ain't going to come through that next purchase. Trust me. It's not going to come through the lies of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's only going to come through the peace given by God, and it's only going to come to those who belong to God. The peace and joy of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, which right here in his holy and inspired word, he prays to the Father to supply. And the Father will supply through the power of his Holy Spirit to all those who belong to him. Right? Now, you've probably figured it out, but we're not going to make it to verse 19 this morning. But that's the beauty of a series, right? I can just take these final two points and put them on next week's outline. Lord willing, we'll continue our exposition of verses 14 through 19 along with the rest of the chapter next week. But first, before you go, don't get too excited. (laughs) Notice the repeated themes as he concludes this section. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why does the world hate them? Because God has separated them from the world. By giving them the truths of his word, where he has revealed his person, his preeminence, his power, his perfect plan of redemption, which is sending his one and only son into this world as God in human flesh for all, not who would earn their way back to him in their own strength, but for all who would but believe. Believe in the gospel of the virgin birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, subsequent burial, triumphant resurrection, and glorious ascension of Christ. And it's that gospel that the unbelieving world, along with their father, the devil, hates to hear. Again, more on that next week. When we hear, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Do you all believe in a devil? Real devil? Well, I hope so. We'll talk about it next week. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the, the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now listen to this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for also all who would believe in me, through their word are you one of those are you one of those have you believed the words spoken not only the prophets but these 11 men and even Christ himself in his word have you come to the father through Jesus the son that's what i'm asking I pray and trust that you have. Again, he is both willing and able to save your soul this morning if you would but respond to his call, believe in the promises of his word, and cry out for his mercy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll have Noel come up and see if he can hold it together. (laughs) Good. Good. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace and uh, the tremendous news of the gospel. We sing along with the angels. Glory to the King, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you saved us by your sovereign grace alone. There's nothing in us that we can... uh, There's nothing in us that, that, that we know of that caused you to save us, but we, we sit here just grateful for it. We're so thankful that you saved us by your grace. We're so thankful that you called us to be your sons and daughters, and we long for that day when we see you face to face to give you praise and honor and worship forevermore. But in the meantime, it's our delight to do so now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you please stand with us?